Boy, this is a special one. We got Fade and Molly. We got two guests. They're a married couple. They're working on this project that's sort of a game, but it's mostly a private game. They don't plan on selling it. It's also a mnemonic device to try to help them model reality? Question mark? Yeah, it's nothing you've ever seen before, but it's fascinating to me. Um, it is game design. It is the ultimate RPG simulationist goal, I would say. Um, blows GURPS out of the water in some respect. And they've got the energy to try to see this thing through. Uh, as you listen, you're going to realize that they're kind of crazy. Uh, but they might be crazy like a fox. They have a dedication to modeling different aspects of society all aspects of society if they could do it and and still nest and structure it in a way that's designed to be memorizable and incomprehensible and they sort of have used their model to understand the real world because they're trying to get to that level of predictive i mean I, i'm trying to brace you for it but you're going to quickly find out how far this goes not only that does need to be said that there's magic there is sort of a different time periods built in there's definitely an rpg uh science fiction medieval different time periods that they're covering in this game and from what i understand it all comes together into a rather comprehensible uh incomprehensible wild and intellectual experiment i'm very happy to have them on the show to find out what it is that they're doing and, and be able to just dig into these minds that that i've noticed these people have been on gdg and they just come up with the weirdest questions out of nowhere and they we can get really in-depth talking about uh, some very philosophical uh, high level abstraction of of human nature and, and and all sorts of things because there's basically nothing that's outside the scope of what they're trying to accomplish so strap yourself in embrace yourself for one of the most interesting discussions and projects that's out there right now
Hey everyone, I'm here with Fade and Molly. We'll be talking about a sort of game, a system. Uh, not really sure how to classify it, so I'm going to let them explain what exactly they're going. Oh, uh, thanks for having us, Bolden. Hi, this is Molly. Um, yeah, well, where to go off with that? Well, you... I mean, it is a game. We use it as a game. You know, we play our own games in it. Um, but I'm not really designing it for publication or for anyone other than myself. Uh, I mean, maybe Molly as well. But outside of our own household, we're not really trying to appeal to any market. Um, I've been working on this for over a decade now. Uh, it has a lot of usefulness to me that doesn't necessarily relate it to the game either. It's... Uh, sort of a categorization scheme. It's a bunch of lists, equations, numbers. It's modeling the world as it is. And it's the way I memorize the information about the world. Yeah, I found that very interesting when I first uh, saw you explaining your system on there. I assumed you were making something you were planning on releasing as a product, and I was fascinated by the scale of your ambition if this was going to be a released product. And then as I talked with you more, I realized it was almost like an exercise more than a specific project that had a beginning and an end. Right. I don't really imagine it ever ending. Right. It's just a way to structure new things that you learn into a overall model that makes everything make sense and fit together. And this is good because when you then learn new information that doesn't add up, that doesn't fit, then like it, it's a lot quicker to point and say, oh, there's something wrong with it. Something doesn't add up here. So this is how, like, even in fields that, like, we're not necessarily experts on, sometimes we can spot that something's bullshit just because it doesn't fit into how everything else works. <laughs> You've got enough of well, value investing, among other things, but, mm-hmm. yeah. You've got enough of an existing sort of pattern that you're trying to establish that you can actually detect anomalies in supposed claims of how things work? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's sort of this uh, problem you have when you're consulting experts in various fields, right? Yeah, Uh, they don't know anything outside of their own field. Well, there's that, and there's also the fact that you are necessarily consulting the expert because you yourself are not an expert. Right, right. It's sort of a dealing with a known unknown in this case. You were trying to figure out whether this expert knows what they're talking about without actually knowing the field yourself. Uh, I've consulted various experts in a variety of fields in the course of making my model, in the course of my own college education, really, um, the various little aspects. It's And as I worked on those things, as I wrote theses and papers for graduation, I also incorporated it into my game as a sort of mnemonic device. Um, I used the term previously, memory castle, is yeah. very much like that. Uh, it's also just as simple as the sort of thing people do where they write down notes by hand because it helps them remember it, even if they never actually read the handwritten notes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, For I've me, modeling the system helps me memorize it so that that information is always available to me and whatever I need to do. Right. Because even if you mind blank on a particular, you know, structure, you can get to it just by starting from a different place and reasoning yourself to Hmm. what you'd already put there. And in as much as I find symmetry in various fields, I'm able to condense the rule set. Mm -hmm. Symmetry, uh, you know, sort of patterning equations on the same sort of factors, same sort of variables, what variables matter, what variables can be disregarded. It's interesting that you can actually get a a more accurate model by disregarding technically causal factors sometimes. Uh, That's a... When you're talking about the the experts you've consulted that you know you can't trust as gospel that they're they know exactly what they're talking about. There's definitely I've known people who've gone to university to study a subject and they come out you know, talking like a crazy person and so 
clearly they're disconnected from reality. It's all theoretical or it's all just an academic sort of knowledge and it's not challenged properly because it's in this setting that's designed to reinforce the wisdom of the people who you're paying to get taught by in a way. Yeah, that's pretty toxic. There's a, I think a word for that I saw once is called Mandarinization, refers to a uh, supposed feature of uh, Qing Dynasty China in which the scholars basically started selecting for people who reinforce their own values at the expense of actual knowledge. It led to a bit of a, not a brain drain, but maybe a Lynette educational devaluation. The article concerned that this would be happening in our modern day. I don't know if that actually happened in China, even as it was described, but it's not a lot of love for Qing Dynasty in China anyway. <laughs> well, I just think that even without anybody purposely doing it, there is a tendency to right. self-reinforce what you already believe, and there's certain agendas and things that just manifest in education. It's interesting that you have essentially your own personal uh, model that you update, and presumably as you get further and further into it, it becomes harder to challenge certain things. And I'm wondering how you offset the tendency or instinct to accept your own model as correct. Well, I mean, a lot of the time, it's just a matter of um, if a thing has been researched very thoroughly and modeled accurately to how it is in real life, the reality of the world doesn't change. At most, your model might factor it differently with different equations, but, you know, the physics has always been how it is for all of history. We change our model of physics, but we don't change physics itself, right? Right. Um, in that regard, I can be confident that the phenomena of the world that I have modeled are the same, at least with a high regard. It gets more blurry when you get to abstract or sociological factors. Um, but nonetheless, we know very clear experience uh, in various fields. Uh, I mean, I think he's asking you, how do you update? Uh, when when do you actually discover that you're wrong if you have this elaborately constructed system? And then how do you go about changing all of it? What does it take to convince you? What changes your model? How does it all change? Yeah. So... Well, that usually happens prior to me modeling. It happens in the process of learning about it. But you can still learn about something and then later find out that what you learned was something that seemingly fit but actually has a lot of flaws, or here's something that fits a lot better that's completely different. And I think the reality just comes down to, like, you point to evidence in real life and you make a good argument. And good arguments will get you to slowly shift your position and then you change how you model things. Maybe like when I convince you that anarcho-capitalism doesn't work, for example. <laughs> you have to find, like, you have to find things that happen in real life, data points, statistics that are just objectively true, right? Like this thing happened, you can't say it didn't happen. Well, and we... you use that to show that there's a flaw in your model when this thing happens not necessarily this result happened, and so on. Yeah, I'm, 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 I guess it goes without saying that you're endlessly curious about how things work. So, there, of course, you want to update things if you find correct something. But uh, as long as you're not <laughs> trying to sell this model of things to somebody else, I wouldn't personally be worried about uh, your your motivations for doing it or reinforce self reinforcing too much because that usually happens once incentive to codify right. knowledge and then pass it on and uh, exploit people's trust in it and stuff like that. Yeah, you're referring more to politics, I guess the pursuit of knowledge per se. Yeah. But um, I guess there are some fields where I ultimately just have to make a judgment call about which competing dogma seems to be most accurate when there's not really a good solution. Um, we live in an age when there's definitely a complete war on information. So 
right. anything goes, completely fabricated events and, and hoax spin and propaganda is more pervasive than ever. So, you know, as far as modern technology or modern uh, methods go for distributing information, I mean, there always was propaganda. That's also you have to remember, but the uh, the level of weaponization of information, pretty crazy. So if I was going to try to do what you were doing, personally, I've given up on trusting authorities on almost anything and even cross, you know, cross-examining I them. That, I find that something that's uh, relatively reliable is uh, if you look up statistics about things that literally nobody cares about, but it's still related enough to your topic that you can use it as a modeling point. Yeah, this is something. Like, there was this really <laughs> stupid infographic that you can see as a meme online, right? Uh, that's basically just misogynistic propaganda about how, like, ooh, men have, like, 20,000 more neuron endings than women, so clearly they have to be leagues smarter. <laughs> but then if you look up something that's just not politicized, like, how many, like, neuron endings do elephants have, and it's only 10,000 less than people... You're like, okay, so clearly the numbers here aren't linear. Oh, like, right, clearly yeah. you're only telling a fraction of the story. Somebody's interpreting the uh, statistics right. in a way. So that... you find boxes that's just things that nobody gives a shit about, so there wouldn't be any incentive for them to skew things and politicize and spin the story. And then you use that statistic to then extrapolate. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so for the purpose of your modeling, you came to GDG to right. get insight into presumably designing the mechanics and just hoping to find somebody else who would be willing to indulge this insane project of uh, modeling all of reality, I guess. Here and there. Sometimes it's just useful sounding board. I've been using TG for years for this purpose, or 4chan in general. Um, TG because it had less noise, if you know what I mean by noise to signal. Right, yeah. Uh, but GDG is just a, you know, as you said in your first podcast, a higher refined form of TG for this purpose. Um, people just are generally more helpful and willing to, you know, try and address the question rather than challenge me on why I'm asking it to the first place. Yeah, I know. I was um, immediately fascinated by some of the questions that you were asking and trying to solve. And the fact that you weren't pushing one side or the other too much, but um, be genuinely curious about take on things, which normally uh, somebody comes in with their own philosophy. They're pretty set in it, and they're only there for game design purposes, so... They're not looking for anyone to challenge them on the philosophy. They're wondering about implementation. Yeah, th this recalls a... You know, it's funny the way my mind makes it, but I recall asking things sometimes on TG, and the overwhelming advice I get is just make a judgment call. And I really could not explain to them, or uh, despite my best attempts, why that was an unsatisfactory answer. I want to know what reality arbitrates, not to arbitrate myself. I don't <laughs> want to decide how things work. I, it's important for me... In, as the GM, as the person running the game, to, to know have why a, something happens the way it does. Right, to have an objective answer to this. Yeah, Whereas even if the players wouldn't, mm -hmm. it would ruin the fun for me to simply decide one way or the other. See, I find that hilarious because I'm like the exact opposite. I go, if, no matter who I listen to or what I hear, I intuitively make a judgment call on whether I think or not. And I pretty much have a, an approach as if it resonates with what I have observed and feel to true, I really don't even care if there's statistics that disprove it. I'm going to go ahead and believe what I believe. I'm very stubborn in that sense. And I will always question what I also believe and also search for truth, but I don't ever look for that much to me, the proof. You always have to question the source. Once you start doing that, 
eventually lead, it leads to funny places, but it sounds like the method that you have of, for example, taking statistics that no one cares about, that is a pretty smart way of trying to inject some objectivity into there where there wouldn't likely be any agenda at all. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, that's just it, a- it's weird though for me because I, I'm not even, like, when I ask, you know, why a thing needs to be, it's not that I'm looking for proof of how a thing works. Even just a reasonable guess would suffice hypo- in most cases. A hypothesis that seems to fit in your model? It's that when I'm running the game, it's not that I have a story in mind per se. I have a, maybe a rough idea of where to take you things. You have a people theme, are a tone, right. not really a plot. I'm yeah. wanting to see what happens more than the players. Right. I want them to tell me the story. Well, that's what I find just, in the discussions that we had. You weren't dismissive at all over views that I had and interpretations of things that I had. Even if even if I was just going off of some of how something worked, you were still very curious and receptive to it. And we had great discussions about some pretty abstract philosophical questions. And I imagine that once you've incorporated whatever you're going to incorporate from that, you did seem receptive to it at least. I can't say that you were, you know, just hunting for somebody to cite a source and, like, link to Wikipedia or something like that. Right. Yeah, It's. I don't really care, you know, that ex-authority said this is the case. I'm more interested in just what actually is the case, right? Um, If that authority is useful in illuminating that, then great. But I'm... Yeah, you're not exactly looking for figures of authority or even necessarily statistics, but just the theory of how things work that fits in with your model. That doesn't jar with anything you already know. Yeah, right. that's a coherentist epistemology, I believe, is what you're referring to. So you to bust out the philosophy bachelor degree, big words. <laughs> yes, yeah, I don't have any of that. Anyway, but, uh, yeah. you're not missing. <laughs> I know I'm not. That's why I didn't take the course in the first place. Yeah. Uh, but you guys have, uh, from what I understand, the game is supposed to work on sort of an infinite time scale, which I thought was a great way of sort of setting it apart from what else was out there on GDG and people were working, where most people very much try to recreate one genre of fiction, pretty much, or types of it you want, and they'll work to whatever extent until they can get the field to correct, but you wanted to be able to set it earliest stages of mankind for theoretical... Right. Um, the sci-fi elements are a little flimsier than the rest of it, I have to say. It's, there's a much more straightforward approach to emailing, you know, various history scholars and HEMA professionals. Uh, you know, we can actually out. find out, like, this is how stuff went down in, like, 12, 18. Whereas there, there's, there's not as many hard proof we can look up about how things go down in, like, 34, 20. Well, it's not just that, but my actual projection of the future is um, much more... It's bereft of conflict or even humanity, to be honest. Um so, you know, in order to try and write a story there, nonetheless, I have to make certain fiat assumptions, and then it becomes more of a hypothetical of, given this is the state of the world, how would things progress? Right. I know I've heard very... I like to listen to different writers. The thing I've heard about sci-fi, and also about Westerns, actually, in certain historical genres, is that they're almost always a product of their time. The story you make is a commentary on the present day, Um <laughs> It's very hard to divorce yourself and everything else because you have to predict the changes that might and probably would happen and stuff like that. So ultimately, science fiction and and historical things are almost always distorted by the author's biases. Or very, very much so. In fact, I think there's a, a fun little anecdote, and I this is one of those things that I can't verify with any great uh, academic veracity, but. Uh, 
as an exercise to the reader, you can look it up yourself. I believe the first sci-fi ever written was um, sometime in the late 1700s, maybe early 1800s, about the world in the year 2000. And the answer was more or less exactly the same as 1810s Britain, but the uh, Protestants have taken over and this is terrible. Or was it the Catholics? I forgot which one, I forgot which one he hated, um, and where the author was from, but he, he did like the, uh, the person on the other island. And, uh, he had assumed that if they had taken control of society, everything technologically would be exactly the same. In the middle of the industrial revolution, no less. <laughs> the, the extent of his imagination, he couldn't see five years into the future, much less 200. It was fascinatingly dense in that regard. Yeah. Um, well, what do you think you know, about somebody like a historical figure like Francis Bacon or somebody who, you know, had these visions of the future that seemed to actually have been pretty accurate then? Uh, not, I'm not aware of that. Um, I think a lot of, you know, prognostication in general is just sort of a cold reading with regards to reality. But mm-hmm. uh, I don't know about Bacon's visions. Well, it's, I don't know. I, don't I actually know. haven't looked into them personally, but I have heard people give him credit for predicting submarines and, and different technologies and stuff that would come around. And I feel like, like throughout all of history, with all of those people throwing ideas out there for what future might hold, some people are going to land on a few that seem semi-accurate if you twist the words a little bit. But nobody can really say that they've seen like you know modern society as it is in its entirety. Right. No, it's always, oh, this person predicted the, you know, machine gun. This person predicted the, like, bubble wrap. Yeah, I've seen but, pretty convincing arguments that Revelations refers to tanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, you know, dragons that breathe fire from metal mounds or something. It was, you know, I mean, it's a complete stretch, but nonetheless. It's easy in hindsight to interpret things in the past prophetic when you're living in the current thing, and you just disregard anything that isn't accurate, so it's really you mm. picking, cherry-picking the things that sound like they're relevant. But uh, I, I think that try to make a predictive model as well, because to me that's sort of the ultimate test of a model of society or whatever, is to be able to say that the things happen. If this happens, then here's what you can expect to see, right? Well, Not that so is much. the goal. I mean, it's predictive in some respects. Not so much with the sci-fi. Yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things about the mo- the, you know, setting I've created is that it is a fantasy setting, and I think the difference between a fantasy setting and a real-life setting is you assert certain metaphysical differences. Um, and then you take those to their logical conclusion. Right. What, for instance, one of the things, uh, the main point of divergence in my sci-fi setting, um, the sci-fi wing of my setting, I should say, is uh, I posit dualism, uh, whereas I don't think that's actually technologically the case in our real, in the real world. But to the extent that you use your game as a model that helps you understand reality, then we certainly use things that we've learned in building the game to predict how things in reality turn out. Yes, that's Things like the influence system in particular. Right. Could you explain that? Uh, the influence system is, uh, one of the finer things I've done and in recent years, no less. I would say the crowning jewel of your system. It's based largely off the work of a friend of mine. Uh, he's, a mathematician who got a law degree and now he works as an eye banker in Wall Street. Uh, And the idea, though, is that he used the best of his own modeling knowledge and lawyering knowledge and banker knowledge to basically try and come up with a prototype model of how corruption happens in society. (laughs) Um, That's a pretty good Venn diagram, I have to say. How corrupt? How corruption and power work. I, I took the basis of that uh-huh. and cross-referenced it with my uh, Chinese wife's experiences in China, which is 
every Chinese person has pretty extensive experience with corruption. It is the, what, fifth largest expense? It's ubiquitous, yes. Yeah, the fifth largest expense in any ordinary Chinaman's budget is bribery. Oh. Like, it's equivalent to our 401k spend. I have some relatives who uh, hail from Mexico, and I very similar stories from there. Where you got to make, you, it's incorporated into the daily life. Right. I mean, you have, you literally have to bribe your kindergarten, or your child will be screwed for life. Aye, aye, aye. Like, it's, we're not kidding. Like, they'll be put in the back of the class, they'll never really advance. It's just, you know, it, no, it's, not, not, not. Yeah. All right, so you have this uh, friend who, because of his exposure to these differences of hell, managed to have a, a pretty good idea of how corruption actually works, and then you right. could incorporate yeah. that. Yeah, we took that system and basically refined it and expanded it a little bit to model uh, not just corruption, but all... I want to say politics, but that, but that's not accurate either. It's just... Sociologists model, call it social capital. Right. Influence, uh, power, how all of that works, how you actually become somebody that's capable of changing the world. And the system was designed with the idea of it's not just as lethal as combat, it is far more devastating than combat. That's how you work yourself in a position where you can screw over like an entire continent's economy, where you can kill millions of people in a single afternoon. Right. I would probably probably label that as leverage, but it comes in different forms, be very sociological Mm -hmm. and be very material. The surprising amount of it is just ran entirely off of, I don't want to say bluffing, but something like it. People owe you favors that they right, don't strictly right. have to pay you back on, I mean, but they keep doing so. It's the so. concept, right, of pretty much everybody that participates in these games on a scale that matters are incredibly wealthy. And to a sufficiently wealthy person, gaining more money has a marginal return on utility. At some point, it just becomes more numbers. But what's the one finite resource that like rich people don't have any more of than you do? It's time. Everybody wants to be the super rich person's friend. Everybody wants to to have a say in their life, to be able to influence their opinions, to hang out all the time. And they only have so many hours of time to give. So you become valuable to people because of the people you're friends with, because because you can command their free time. And you use your ability to command some influential person's free time to get people who want access to that to do favors for you. And before you know it, you're an influential person yourself. People buy for your free time so they can talk you into using your friend's free time to do what they want. Yeah, you have this uh, power by proxy. Right. Uh, This was an interesting story that happened in my hometown. There was a local businessman there who uh, basically owned the entire town, a really big international corporation, Uh, and he was building some really expensive infrastructure around town, and he was buying materials that should have cost him $10 million. And he was negotiating with the supplier, and he said, how about instead of paying you $10 million, I pay you nothing, but I will put a million dollars into this local restaurant and put it on tab, and whenever you want, I'll go eat lunch with you there. (laughs) And the supplier thought this was a fantastic deal. Wow. It probably was. I mean, that's the thing. That connection, that influence, because even if you don't get anything out of it yourself, merely being able to say, hey, I have lunch with Mega Tycoon every Wednesday will make other people interested in you. And do stuff for you. Right. And get you things that money couldn't buy. I find that interesting because I've often thought of honor as a 
currency. And in my own system, previous iterations of I wanted to basically bake that in official thing is that amount of honor you had. It was a way of being actually more valuable than currency because you can pull favor. Uh, if you have position want to be honored by you or whatever, it's, it is a very much a valuable limited currency that um, you can manipulate bypass all sorts of regular rules and taxation, everything, because they just know that if I attack the enemies of this guy, and then I go to him and I say, I did this for you, he might give me a favor. It's like, he didn't even have to tell you to do that. These people are seeking mm -hmm. out ways to get in your good graces. You didn't have to pay right. them like mercenaries, you mm -hmm. know, that, that kind of idea. And power builds power the same way money builds money. The more, it, we call it influence, not honor, but it's a very much the same sort of, uh, fungible cap capital of sorts. Right, but unlike honor where something depends on your reputation and you can ruin that overnight, influence once you have it is a more long-term asset. It's a little more stable. Right. This you know, is functioning off of like, I have a reputation as an honorable person. You cheat one person one time and they go around telling everybody and your reputation is done. Right. I mean, people, people you know, in influence wars, people attack each other's reputations directly, though. The idea... I mean, well, even yes. with someone with no positive reputation, like a crime but boss. It's just not as fragile, not that it's invincible. Like, to, t to take this to a slightly more grittier aspect, right, right. like a gang lord on the street uh, has to respond to an insult. It, right. it is just a intuitive fact of life that they understand on a very visceral level. If you allow that insult and do not respond to it, then you lose all credibility on the street as a threat. Mm -hmm. Your authority is challenged. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just honor per se. It's nor is it just reputation. If people feel like they can uh, take advantage of your favors that you provide for them using your gang, and then you don't pay them back, if they feel like they can do that and get away with it, then suddenly everyone who owes you a favor just forfeits the debt. Yeah. It's and really then you have no debts to call upon. No, and you have no network. You have no influence. Yeah. It, sort of a, it ends up becoming a social programming scheme where you have to, at the very least, you have to establish a certain predictive model. Say that of what will happen if you do X. Well, if you do good things for me, then I'll reward you. Do bad things. You know, mm -hmm. this is what's. This is where yeah. you're going to end up. And you send a message. Time mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. Um. So a lot of it's just game. It's a lot of it's game theoretical. Uh. In a very basic way. Right. There's um, punishment costs to be paid. And if you don't maintain that, then people defect without repercussion. Do people who uh, play this game or, you know, theoretically come up and ask, give me rules. I want to run this game. Is it even possible to for somebody else to run this game? Yeah, yeah. you can. <laughs> I mean, like you have the rules are written down in documents. You can send them to people you have before. You've mm -hmm. sent them basically your rules and told them, hey, have a look at this, play around with it, let me know what you think. A lot of it's pretty modular. Like, uh, the game can run without the influence system. The game can run without the engineering system. The game can run without magic, but... Right. Yeah, we, we have the rules. They can be given to people. Like, we share them. we've shared them with more than one person already. That I find interesting because that, that means you still have the pressure to make it coherent and accessible to some extent. You can't sort of just have this bubbling uh, cauldron notion in your head that you, you project onto. You, I mean, to be fair, 99% of your system is just pages upon pages of you arguing with yourself. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's sort of the design notes. I try to keep yeah. those in case I need to reference them in the yeah. future. There are some like coherent notes that we wrote up just as a way to like organize our own thoughts. A lot of times so it's that, a summary of Right, right. Included. So that when we're talking to somebody else about, oh, we made this interesting mechanic, we can pull that page up and explain as it goes and not just get completely sidetracked. But like, it's not that there aren't coherent written rules, but those are vastly outnumbered by the like 500 word document pages he has of just arguing with himself about what telekinesis even is. <laughs> See, I was going to make a joke saying that you had 150 pages of essays we're actually collecting, but it's way worse than that. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, way worse. Well, I wouldn't even call them essays. They're uh, I mean, there's, I, I, I have to customize my word for, uh, processor to have strike through on hotkey, because <laughs> I use it quite a, quite a great bit. Uh, you which, have like five different fonts of different aspects of yourself arguing for different right, stuff. Right, italics, bold, underline, indented, um, <laughs> multiple different, uh, voices. And I'm not kidding, like, a large part of the crazy rambling is about how telekinesis, like, what what even is it? Well, it's because I, ref- I mean, I made it from the ground up, right? Like, I made it a metaphysical consequence of the universe, and at the same time, like, I didn't want it to be... When I add something to the game, I always deconstruct the entire setting to respond to that. For instance, well, teleportation know, magic yeah. exists, therefore... In the era where teleportation magic is well known, world economies become very uh, unstable. Right. right. There's all massive amounts of teleportation theft, uh, teleportation artillery. You have um, to reintegrate it into the into the model and then uh, right. create an internal logic that's consistent. Yeah. So that's always been one of our quibbles with D and D was that you had this massive spell list where any one spell would change society fundamentally, but none of it ever seems to have an effect. Mm-hmm. I so barely, we decide, I was yeah. just having a conversation with somebody else last time on the on the podcast. I was talking about exactly that. How D and D for me was a perfect example of because my entire interest in designing an RPG is also out of hating D. And <laughs> a big part of it was because of this completely dissonant experience of having these powers. And then you still walk into town, and some guy spits at your shoes and tells you to get out of town. It's like you could you could do any number of miraculous things to ruin this person's life, but you still don't get any respect. And it's not the world isn't designed to reinforce the logic of what actually would happen in this circumstance. Right. Same with being surrounded by an infinite a number of monsters at all times to stray off the road a little bit. People also mm-hmm. don't, you know properly fear travel or something it's like the it's a it's an oblivious system full of dissonance and that's in a way i believe what makes it such an appealing system and and if i can be really cynical about it i actually believe that the term fantasy in some ways is just a synonym for dissonance but what you're trying to do is actually i think that is accurate in a lot of cases and that's exactly what we're trying to avoid which is like what he meant right when he said It's a fantasy system, but it's not just like, oh, what are the, like, tropes necessary that we have to throw in? We'll just, like, jam elves and dwarves in there, even though they have no purpose being there. It's about starting from, let's change one minor thing about how physics works. How does that then reflect on society? And you spin the whole entire magic system out of that. That's fascinating. Do you still have a concern for um, the game experience as, like... Yeah, that's... 
sort of like a lot of the ways that we magic is only interesting in terms of what limitations it has, right? And magic where it's just you can do whatever you want quickly becomes very boring. And the way we decide what boundaries has to be there is to try to limit the impact it has on the society in such a way that somebody can come in and play the game and everything kind of still happens in a cause and effect logical makes sense, not that different from reality way. I'm trying to think of examples. Uh... So like, 90% of the problems we've been wrestling as far as magic goes is just trying to prevent magic from being able to push society into post-scarcity. Oh, right, yeah, but tilt the balance of uh, the uh-huh. the laws of thermodynamics. And- oh, yeah. Or energy. You have infinite energy. With infinite energy, you can come up with infinite matter, and then, like, there's no such thing in society anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and on a sociological level, I mean, I would, I'd love to explore that kind of stuff, too, actually. The, the idea of the entrenched powers that be also have a stake in maintaining poverty, supply and demand ratios, and that kind of Right, and then there's a speculative anthropology aspect, which is very... I paint that with a loose brush. There's not a lot of accurate research you can do in that in general, but I have a lot of fun trying to speculate how society develops culturally around that type of power. Uh, and by the same token, speculative metaphysics or speculative physics in this regard, I have more leeway to alter that part of the model than I do, say, the influence system. Right. Uh, whereas the influence system really does need to model... What happens in real life. Right, or at least that's its intended purpose. And same with the engineering. Uh, the Or even just, like, melee combat. Like, HEMA is something I really try to get right, and I find that a lot of my assumptions were polluted by, you know, Hollywood narrativist dynamics. That Yeah, I remember that discussion. Right, and it's I've been trying to clean it up, because I went I just sort of took a lot of things at face value and didn't really question it very hard, and considered that to be sufficient research. And now I'm not really satisfied with it, so I've been working on it, and I, you know, trying to find better systems, better models, and but improve on that. I guess the advantage of magic is that there's no corresponding in real life. Right. So if you decide, oh, like, it doesn't work that way anymore, you can just do that overnight. So it still is a metaphysical consequence, but in as much as if the logical consequence of adding this metaphysical rule to the world mm-hmm. is post-scarcity or post-conflict, then it becomes useless as a, you know, content producer. So you can just change how magic works. How do you feel about uh, research? Do you ever research the cultures where they do believe magic happens and the sort of effects that actually happen there? Uh, I have notes on that, and I kind of made a design decision to stray in a very different direction, but I did actually... um, Ultimately, magic in my system is just metaphysical science. It's actually... It's not even different than... It's not even metaphysical. In the world, it's just physics. Right. Like, yeah, they just call it physics. Everyone who does it is a physicist. Yeah, there's no people in in that world saying, oh, when you make this gesture, teleportation happens, we call that magic. When you drop a rock, it falls, we call that physics. To them, it's the same thing. Well, and it would be because, obviously, yeah. you understand right. something enough to control it and predict it and engineer mm-hmm. around it, it would be yeah, yeah. just part of physics. All, all wizards are are just in-setting PhD students. Pretty much. Um... I keep the term mages and wizards because I think it sounds period appropriate for the Renaissance, but um, which is the default era if people aren't particularly swayed one way or the other. It's the highest magic era. Oh, I see. Um, so, like, that's when they really get big on the magic. And then there's um, the meta. There is a meta plot for my setting, although 
the system and the setting are separate, of course, because you could run the system on a completely different setting, and it would it would work just fine. Right. Right. Um, but in the interest of uh, being able to quickly come up with an idea to play at the table, when people say, "Oh, I want to set it during this era in this country," we come up with a like default setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is where a lot of the speculative anthropology comes in. I design right. cultures from scratch based, I start with just the terrain, and then I work on the economics of that terrain. And then when I have a rough idea of what resources, food, uh, you know, and climate yeah. are like, then I start building what their cultural norms would be, uh, based on the closest analogs I can find in our world, um, and with some inferred speculation. Uh, what, but with regard to the setting though, uh, there is a meta plot that connects the different eras. There's history involved because I feel like history is always engaging and important for any given setting. Um, and you can play in different eras of history. So if you started out in the modern, you know, a modern era of my setting, and then you found out there was this historical figure in the Renaissance who was really interesting uh-huh. in like the, you know, Nisahari region, um, then you might actually be interested in playing in that different era, in that different region oh, right. in a completely different culture. Uh, and I can make that happen. Um, the third it, it's era... It's also kind of rewarding player when you do something and it actually gets included in the canon of the story. Right. I have to say um, this, just as a little interruption, it's kind of like an exponential version of GURPS. <laughs> uh, I've never played GURPS before, so... I've tried to read it a few times to scrap it for parts, and it's... I hear there's a lot of tables. Really dense. Yeah. But... Uh, um, yeah, so you actually have a little bit of a, a plot that can maybe be... Yeah, there's, there's a bit of a meta plot, right? Um, but the idea is that magic reaches its peak around the third era, and, uh, spoilers, there's a lot of magical oopsies, and uh, then comes the witch hunting era. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, after there's a near miss on the apocalypse, they sort of purge magic out of history. And then the industrial and modern eras go on fairly normal with a low-key amount of magic in the background if you really, really look for it. Um, yeah, that's the other interesting thing, I think, about your system, right, is that we do our best to make a system where there's no tables at all. Yeah, um, as much as possible. Yeah. I mean... That's... Uh, there's, there's always this kind of restriction, I feel, when it's like you roll on the table to see what happens, and there's like a maximum, maybe like 20, 100, maybe a 1,000 things that could possibly happen. Mm-hmm. Whereas it makes more sense to have an equation, and you can extrapolate that to extremes that tables couldn't reach, and models that actually show how things happen instead of being restricted to this list. And that's why we don't work with spell lists either. Mm -hmm. The second you make a table with, like, a list of 16 things, that's all the 16 things that will ever happen in your game. People stop being creative with it. I I will make a counterpoint to that, is that the list can add creativity, too, though. Like, take the inventory. The reason I even bothered to make that is to give people ideas of what sort of things they could use back in an earlier technological era. Right. Mm-hmm. Like in the medieval day, there's just a lot of common items. We don't bother to go to the hardware store and carry these things around anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's use to them that becomes more relevant, but you wouldn't notice once you're already out in the field. Yeah. Um, I would say that uh, being able to articulate at least a bunch of examples would be good. Right. But but that's not really a, you know, role on this table, which I've never I've never seen happen once in your system. I'm not, I'm not even sure we have a table. Uh there's only one that you roll on, and that would be uh, the 
basically the critical hit table, which is very similar to Riddle of Steel. Yeah, and then there's like you roll for your like starting wealth, I guess. That's literally. That's it. not a table though.、That's, Is it not? No. Okay. That's just a percentile. I just okay. Know the, I know the. I, I you know if you roll the one percent, you're in the one percent. That's how I see. I see that. I see. Um. So. Yeah. So,、right. you're so would you would you mind giving me an example of like a spell and how you'd bother essentially inventing it using your physics? Well, a lot、uh, of it's fairly freeform. Yeah. Right. right. Um, um. So as just an example,、uh, there's lots of different schools of magic in the system, but.、Uh, One of the schools,、uh, which is semi-finished, it, it revolves around teleportation. And all you say to players is, "Okay, you can teleport from any place you know the coordinates, like longitude, latitude of, to any other place you know the longitude, latitude of, but you cannot alter your altitude." And those are the restrictions. And just go. Oh, I also tie a bunch of other parameters to your character's statistics. Right. Now you, you can move a you know volume about you know five meters in radius、mm-hmm. and just go and see what shenanigans they come up with. So, well, the other thing about my magic system is that it was always information based and、right. was always intended to be based.、Uh-huh. So everything requires an information. In the case of teleportation, it's coordinates,、uh, which in the medieval day comes down to star charts.、Um, they have to get very very detailed star charts、mm-hmm. in order to navigate from one place to the next. Hmm. So、um, in, in, in a sense, even though、uh, you're not particularly designing this to be commercially appealing game or whatever, you are. That sounds to me like a very game design solution. How to incentivize players as simultaneously restricting something so that they can't abuse it too much. You're also incentivizing a pursuit, a certain thing before you allow them the power. The classic role game design. Well, maybe, but I didn't really think of it as game dynamic. It's information is power. It well, is it, the most destructive force you can possess. Yes. In real life,、uh, your you know your knowledge of technology or your knowledge of espionage, your knowledge of a social network,、yeah. all of these things are what bring down empires. Mm-hmm. What wins battles? I guess. I mean, that's that's basic Sun Tzu, right? And the and the other idea was、uh, mages. We designed to be an int-based class, and we wanted the playstyle to kind of reflect that you actually need intelligence. For this character, whereas like your casting stat doesn't really reflect on who your character is necessarily in a lot of other games, so we try to base a magic system where in order to cast spells, you first have to have a lot of information, a lot of knowledge about how to pursue those you know clues that let you perform magic to begin with. So then. The way you naturally play a mage then would be a very curious, very investigative, very research-oriented character. I mean, I'm not even sure it's about building that theme. Even it's if I didn't include information as the fundamental limitation, then the deconstruction consequence completely breaks down the world. Yeah, I agree. I just figured that I find it interesting. It actually, didn't as a game、yeah. choice.、Uh, one of the pinnacles, I think, just an anecdote of what we managed to accomplish with magic was that、uh, in one of our campaigns, we had a mage whose magic system revolved around you have. Whenever you have downtime, you can add words like just normal English words to your spellbook, and then whenever you string those words into a sentence, what you say happens in a sphere of influence around you. And there's magical materials you can work with where whatever you say, that object takes on those properties. And、uh, I think the pinnacle of our achievement as mages was when we got our hands 
on a whole bunch of this magical material we call Hyle, which can take on whatever magical properties you imbue it with permanently. Uh, and to be we, fair, that was a limited spell. I know, but it's like just an example of like what you can do when you are creative. Yeah, but right? you know, like I mean, footnote: this doesn't apply to the system in general. That was a unique consequence of the corrupted circumstance. Anyway, we got our hands on a lot of this material. What we did was we built a, we turned it into steel. We built a ship, and then we put enchantments that made the ship immune to Newton's third law. I forget <laughs> what the exact wording went, but it was something like, uh, like force against uh, steel reflect. I I don't re- recall the exact wording we chose. Well, now I'm I'm very curious. Sound. No, like this was actually uh, this took three months in real life. We met for a solid twelve sessions and just worked on wording this spell to make <laughs> this shit functional. This is a level. Of- and this is how no, this is how mage games play. You spend weeks and weeks of in real life time designing a spell, setting up a circumstance, and it's very planning based. Well, I gotta say that sounds a hell of a lot more satisfying than using a spell slot. You get one every day. But I don't think I could actually wasn't, do it myself. Wasn't it? Wasn't it in that character sheet? Yeah, it looks like that's where it is. Yeah, I was checking the DM notes. I think it was. But yeah, um, before that, uh, I can yeah. remove. I can remove the silence, so it doesn't matter if you take a while. Okay. Uh, there's Chihuahua. Yeah. Would it be under Kaisu since he's the one that built it? Uh, or did you write an entire character sheet? Like shit. No. Neither. Damn. It's not under character sheets. Oh, did we lose the spell? It was really clever. Uh, oh, I think that was it. Go down a little. No, it's not. Was it not? Oh, right. That's the tower shield. To be fair, the reality does what you say thing is not really... Oh, I mean, I, we can spend hours just, just talking about red magic. It's just a simplification. Clearly, right. you have a group that doesn't mind indulging the utmost extent, so... <laughs> If somebody else were to run this, it would have to accommodate my process than spending weeks trying to figure out a spell. So I'm wondering, uh, what what kind of yeah. limitation, uh, and do you care about the path somebody would take as a, to go from being just a normal person, a mage thing? Like, do you glue sort of shortcuts to getting to where you want, or do you force people to actually role play, like, you know, spending your entire adult life researching stuff before you can accomplish uh. something? We have this uh, thing in setting pretty much, right, uh, if you're playing it during the highest magic era, of basically just it's a mage university. And when a character wants to become a mage, he has, like, actual college lectures written up. And he just sits down and he sends it to them or he sends it to them so that they can read through those lecture notes and learn from, you know, from an actual in-universe professor how magic works. And then usually we have a couple sessions where a player kind of plays around with their magic, sees what happens in controlled circumstances. And at that point on, we kind of release them into the world and let circumstances and necessity direct their uh Creativity. Because it goes back to the integrated internal logic of the setting where there would be to try to facilitate something like magic. Yeah, I mean, the organization of the Mage Guild is largely what defines the Third Era. Uh, and I tried to get pretty involved in how the political neutrality of it, because it, 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 was, very, it was very similar in you know, weapons of mass destruction on a large scale. Um, like, they, they ended up trying to form a sort of UN-type council about it. Uh, they partitioned aside an entire continent that was completely neutral and that uh, all mages are necessarily loyal to the allegiance of the mage guild and that if there was a war, they had to, like, 
either remain neutral or stop, um, work together to like shut it down. I may have uh, missed somewhere along the line. You'll have to remind me if I forgot. But is this set in Earth? Like, are there the existing current countries, or is this a fiction? You have the option to have other continents. It sounded like this is modular to the extent where you could put it into any other setting. But do you consider the default setting to be Earth? Not exactly. No, not not really. Um, no. It's not Earth. Yeah, I mean, it's Earth as if it might have had evolved with completely different um, metaphysics, right? And a couple of different races in there that we don't have. Well, that's part. Those are all consequent of the metaphysics. Though. I see. Gotcha. That's, like you're gotcha. talking about the taint of the Umbra. Okay. Um, gotcha. Which is a metaphysical consequent of the unknown unknowns, as opposed to the fate engine. I, I could get really bizarre in my own jargon here. Point is, um, I didn't really want to fuss around with like the physics behind tectonic plates and drawing my own continent map. Uh, so I mostly just did a 180 uh, of the actual map and then reversed it. Huh. So it's not actually one-to-one, um, but it keeps a lot of the climates, ecologies, and um, does, it does a lot of the work for me, and it looks original when I redraw the boundaries. Right. So. It's actually really hard to come up with your own whole entire different fictional ecology. Because you're not just designing a couple fantasy races, you're coming up with all the flora and fauna that could exist in the region. So this way, it lets us just look up, like, what is in South America. Mm-hmm. But the point is, the map I use is a distortion of the real world. Uh, yeah. But it is otherwise the real world. And most people, when they realize this, it, it took them a while the first time I showed, finally gave them a world map. Because maps are expensive in my system. They're like Mastercraft magic items. Like, you got to pay a lot of money for a map. Because yeah, yeah. Some, some poor fuck had to go all around the world and make that map. Yeah, but, uh, like, if you actually get the world map, they kind of looked at it, and about, like, an hour later, they're like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> that, that looks a lot like America, and they kind of figured it out from there. And then the um, political boundary divisions of nations and that kind of stuff, I imagine, totally different. Yeah, map yeah, yeah, well, mostly. Uh, there are a few natural boundaries, right? Like, huge mountain ranges and large, vast deserts tend to sort of solve themselves, right? Uh, although one of the more, I guess, ambitious things I did is um, I actually did go back and uh, look into geological records mm-hmm. and uh, drew up green Africa uh, back when, before the Sahara Desert existed when it was all Savannah Plains. I figured out all the riverways. Uh, Lake Megachad was there. Like, I, I found out Lake Me- This is real, like, you know, geo- geology. There was actually a massive lake in the middle of Africa, similar to our Great Lakes. Um, But I think it was a salt lake, not a glacial one. So... Uh, You know, rearrange the winds uh, based on that pre-tidal shift. Yeah, and it turns out if you turn the entire Sahara Desert into fertile plains, then Africa becomes a really powerful nation. Mm -hmm. Much like China, really. It's just vast, vast farmland. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's very similar to what China is and why China had a colossal population. Um, So I built a society then based on the mineral resources that we know are in the Sahara combined with the agricultural resources that would have developed under green Africa. And uh, it became a superpower. So, so even, you know, I I have to make a, another comparison. I compared it to GURPS before, but now I'm going to compare it to Dwarf Fortress. Did you ever look into that game? Because the, uh, the level of simulation there, if you're not familiar with it, if listeners aren't familiar. I mean, I've, I've played it a bit, sort of, um, I, the learning curve, I'm, 
could not get past it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it, uh, the opposite of a user-friendly game. But for, for those who have never right. heard of it, it, this really ugly, basic little game where at the start of it, it generates a world. and You can change the sliders and the settings. It generates not only land and continent, mountain, whatever. It Because the, the whole point of the game is you control a band of dwarfs that can uh, tunnel endlessly, basically, and mine resources and stuff. It actually models all the layers of earth and sediment and underwater mm-hmm. yeah. ravines and everything. And then it projects forward from an ancient history, however many, like, thousands of years you want history to continue to until the point where the game actually starts. And then you can go find artifacts of things that happened in oh, ancient history. Cool. But it's all generated at like a, as fast as your computer can process it, and I think uh, not just to, as a point of comparison. I am I have no choice but to compare it because I don't know of anything else that tries to say here's a piece of land. I'm not going to project what I think is cool onto it. I'm going to say here's what would happen a place that has these resources, has this terrain, and then model it forward to the point where you're, you can actually play in it, and presumably there's history there and some legacy. Yeah. That's... In fairness, that is what's cool to me, so I am projecting what's cool, but <laughs> <laughs> it yeah, is nonetheless but... modeling. I'm not fiating cool. Uh, it's just... mm-hmm. You're simulating something to the extent where you're bypassing the writing process. Well, it certainly makes it easier for me, which is one of the things that I find very useful about this. Yeah. I don't uh... have to have a lot in mind when I run a game, uh, aside from what I already know about the world. I just kind of do what would logically and naturally occur. Mm-hmm. You can select any random era, put yourself down in any random place in the world, and you okay. already have an idea of the economic situation and conflicts that would exist there. Yeah, and then all you need is a group of motivated players, which are really hard to find. Like, I could do it right now. Like, you know, give me an era 0 through 7, uh, and give me a rough region. Uh, you know, uh, we can use Ameri- like modern-day cultural analogs. So you say China, and I'll put you on the cultural analog to China, which would be the Af- the Green Africa Sahara, actually. I'll let, um, uh, I'll let Molly do that, because I, I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I need simulated. But The point is, you do that, I can pick out a city from that region, and then I will model the economics of that city, and then I will tell you every important person in that city. Yeah, that's a hell of an accomplishment. I can see why the multi-purpose nature of what you're trying to design. Once you actually climb that mountain, establish enough principles and enough mm-hmm. logic, it does end up being a tremendous time saver. What you might encounter later on, if the promise mm-hmm. of a role-playing game is this sort of ultimate freedom to explore and mm-hmm. to grapple with the logic of a fictional hypothetical world, then that's really what you're doing on a system level without requiring that much input from a clever GM who's going to uh, write his setting. Right. There, There is no derailing my games, per se. Um, you know, you end up wandering out into the vast plains of the West, and there's plenty there for you to find. Um, mm-hmm. I just talked about that on the last podcast, uh, how much I enjoy when a, a game designer has embraces the idea of a totally populated world a mm-hmm. there's no dead spaces there where you can't explore or you're just just the place you have to walk across because there's nothing to interact with mm-hmm. or you just throw monsters at things because that's the default filler for any given scenario that you haven't thought through mm-hmm. yeah actually cody was uh, uh commenting the other day on how uh, how rare it is to even see a monster in my setting oh yeah because you really have to go out of your way to find them because they have their own ecology so 
Well, I mean, it just makes sense that there's not a whole bunch of dangerous monsters roaming between two like populated, prosperous towns、mm-hmm. because people would do something about it before you got there. Right. Or those towns wouldn't exist. There's monsters. Right. Would be- right. Which would be the entirety of Dragonia. Like I have a continent that's just filled with dragons, and basically it's uninhabitable. Well, exactly. Because dragons. So. Yeah, and that's that feels a lot more honest and a lot more clear to sort of、uh, fantasy as distant sort of model that. You have this、uh, broken logic of the hero's journey that is all grounded inception.、Mm-hmm. Broken、mm-hmm. logic to the point where you're like, okay, well, for some reason nobody has dealt with this problem staring us in the face for thousands、yeah. of years, and for some reason that problem hasn't destroyed us for thousands of years. I'm going to be the guy that solves it. You can have that fantasy, but it's so unsatisfying to be propped up like a, a Hollywood stage. You know, there's meat. Yeah, I think that the idea is it's not the GM or the settings job to make you the special main character. What you have to do as a player, if you want to be the special main character, is bring to the table a character who has ambitions of his own to go out and solve whatever conflict you perceive there to be in the world. Yeah, that, there's a surprising amount of overlap between what you're doing and what I'm doing because I do. I haven't talked about this GDG, but I do want to have a world generator, and I do want to have、uh, biomes and, to some extent, cultures、uh, generated for the GM, and then be able to derive a lot of the adventuring possibilities out of that. But I have, I do try to steer things a little bit more towards sort of guaranteed. Adventures that can happen in there if you want to,、uh, because、mm-hmm. I'm not trying to model something that accurately. I'm a tool to kickstart all sorts of possibilities. But in that same way, laying that groundwork does emanate a lot of workload off the DM. And again, it's like you said, you, the players have to be motivated in order to make a story happen there. The story、mm-hmm. doesn't come and knock on your front door. You have to、right. make it yourself. Right. Yeah. I mean, when I have to, I can make a story. I generally loathe to do this, but sometimes、yeah. players demand it. Yeah. And as much as they're very passive consumers of, I guess they just want me to tell them a story.、Uh, this I usually find very unsatisfying. It's less testing my model and more me just sort of. I don't know. It's it still kind of works, but it's like playing chess with yourself, I suppose. Yeah, I can see how it would、off. be for somebody who is obviously for the level of. Intellectual stimulation that you are out of modeling all of this stuff. It's a very passe, boring exercise in、uh, not modeling anything, but just sort of dragging somebody through a three-act structure.、Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to make a random NPC quest giver and be all like, "Go find this random person," and that's just not that、right. compelling a story. Since they've never developed any player motivations, I have to resort to rather base motivations, such as "or I'll kill you." Yeah. Yeah.、Um, exactly. And it's just sort of, you know, weak. <laughs> well, that brings me to one of the other topics we wanted to get to, which was、uh, sort of the illusion choice. You were using.、Mm. We were having a discussion the other day about、um, the Stanley Parable and this、right. paradigm of design, where a designed experience that promised freedom is sort of oxymoronic, and and ultimately、oh. you end up back in in the passenger seat, no matter how much you try to behind the、Why? wheel. That the main difference between video games and tabletop, right, is you can't really do anything that wasn't pre-programmed in a video game because you're literally working within the programming at all times. But that's completely different when you're interacting with human participants and human GMs. And I know that we've pulled things before that you just honestly had never considered that threatened to break the system because it was going outside of what the system had ever intended. And then what we do is we sit. 
sit down and we fix it. Well, in a sense, what happens in the worst the worst case scenario is always that you go into free form in a tabletop RP where there's a GM that just decision on a on a matter, and so mm-hmm. you sort of know when you're you've broken beyond the when you're just free form, and they're just a judgment call that you made. Whereas a video game will have a very concrete barrier that you can't go past. And even if I mm-hmm. compare it to something like a Dwarf Fortress, which I consider the pinnacle of this obsessive simulation attempt, mm-hmm. you know, you're still ultimately only in control of this dwarves and they only have this set of skills, whatever. So it's still that much more removed from ideal sort of promise of the RP of total freedom in a bleeded world. Mm-hmm. Well, I do think that the, uh, you know, it's not necessarily total freedom, but the idea that you can be the content producer rather than the content consumer. I think right. that's the actual paradigm that makes tabletop unique compared to video games. It's a restriction of the medium of video games that it will always be produced by someone far away and then digitally distributed to a consumer. In Stanley Parable, there are many choices. And I feel like a lot of GMs, when they start out, they may write a railroad with many different tracks to switch to. But in the end, there's only like six different endings, and you just line things up to pick the ending you want. You have choice, but you don't have agency. Agency, to me, is being the content producer of writing your own character's motivations from the beginning and writing the story that you wanted ever. Right, yes, yes. This is the main draw of why I play your system, is I have a very specific story in mind that I want to tell, and you as the GM just give me the stage on which to, give me the pages on which to write it. Right, and which is why I said that I'm, you know, consequently, as the GM, I'm often at my best, I'm often enjoying the game the most, when you do things I don't expect. Or when I'm, when I am the witness, mm-hmm. when I am the consumer, mm-hmm. not the producer of the content. And that my job is merely to run the model, to mm-hmm. run the system, which reacts. And I mean that in a very, you know, emphatic way. It reacts to the actor, right. uh, the agent. Whereas I feel a lot of stories, a lot of default for D&D players, for instance, is that the players are reacting GM. Oh, absolutely. Um, so I very much prefer it when players choose to act, when players choose to have agency. And I think that's something that's fundamentally different about the medium compared to video games. The closest thing you could maybe compare it to modding is where you actually have tools or hack the game itself to add new content to come to content producer, but that is an external process that you then have to go and do separately and then introduce to other people. Right. Exactly. You're usually not doing it at the table, you're not doing that as part of the, as the activity itself. That's preparation for a separate activity. Yeah, you mm-hmm. can kind of artificially expand the scope of the game in, in a video game that has something like that, but you're still not organically creating things in the setting as a character. I think there was a quote I uh, said, rather you quoted me, said you wanted to remember it, uh, to the effect that uh, the purpose of a rule in a tabletop RPG is to inform everyone at the table, the GM and the players, rather than to declare, to decide. Uh, at least that's how I see it. It seemed obvious. You know, apparently a lot of people view it very differently. But for me, it's not about making a decision so much as giving you an idea of how to handle the situation reactively as the GM. I totally agree. I- a lot of my system based on a core assumption, core proposition that the players need to be in charge and the GM needs to be helpful making in empowering them or experience the logical consequence of what they want to do. Mm. You're sort of there to reinforce the logic of the world and not to impose a 
story or an experience per se. And it's kind of a rabbit hole that's dangerous for somebody like myself. I, I love to write stories. I love to tell stories. Um, I, I don't want to simulate things in sort of a capacity but at the same time, I know that as the game designer, you have to be hands off. And there's a there's a balancing act I try to get where I promise a certain kind of experience. I don't. It's not a generic or a universal system. And then the promise is that as long as you want the experience that I'm offering, the the sort of scope of my system, I'm going to do everything I can to give you single option freedom within that. But I could, for my own sanity's sake, I didn't want to go in full range of possibilities, but there was sort of a consequence starting to go down that road that I realized, oh no, I, I, can't, I can't do this. I'm going to drive myself. You know, it's actually, it's funny that you mentioned the full range of possibilities. Uh, the magic system that I ultimately ended up with started out as a philosophical thesis project to map all possible human thought. <laughs> you come up with a mathematical boundary for every possible permutation and combination of conceivability. And by doing so, create a reference to um, the unreferenceable, to the inconceivable, to define the inconceivable in a very hard mathematical way. It ended up being a very soft mathematical way, <laughs> if that makes any sense. Yeah. But it nonetheless was a, an interesting project for me. Uh, and the consequent result is the magic system I have now, which is I feel fairly confident there is nothing within the realm of magic. There is nothing my magic system could not handle. There is nothing you can imagine that is not covered by some combination of the lore in my magic and metaphysics um, of all human possibility of all human. Yeah, given yeah, given unlimited resources. Right. There is game mechanical limitations, I guess you could say. Uh-huh. Or rather, information limited uh-huh. research. No, I once calculated how much money it took to make a shower in like yeah. med- medieval ages using nothing but magic, and it was literally millions. Right. It is ironic that there are some things that seem very simple end up being very expensive to do with magic compared mm-hmm. to just mundane physics, um, because it just becomes an un- a not a very useful way to do things. Um, nonetheless. Given an unlimited amount of mages, like if you had enough people working together... And infinite money. There is nothing, there is no spell that cannot be cast. Oh yeah, that would definitely encourage creative players. I don't know how common it actually to have creative players, but that is definitely what your system designed for is... I think that there's lots of people capable of being creative if they run up against, like, just an obstacle that interests them. Like, we've spent months in game. Like using all sorts of crazy magic bullshit to try to get ourselves a free source of mithril because we as players were too cheap to pay for mithril. We went to the market to buy some gear and we were all like, no, fuck that. We're just going to go make our own. Well, that's what people would use magic for. So that's sense. I so, mean- like, you don't, it's very, I feel like a lot of people run out of inspiration if you sit them down and you're just like, go, be creative. But when you put an obstacle in their path, like, I've seen so many crazy ideas thrown out there for how to get around it. Right, but sort of the invention, or necessity is the mother of right. invention. Put another way, give an artist a blank canvas and they may stare for months without inspiration, but give them some limitations, some restrictions, maybe they can only use brown paint, and suddenly you'll get masterpiece after masterpiece. Yeah, it's that too. oftentimes what you're limited by mm-hmm. uh, that defines the scenario most interestingly. And this is 
I think a greater property of information and entropy in general. Mm-hmm. Um, entropy being the enemy of information. Mm-hmm. And I mean information in a very information theory way. Mm-hmm. Um, the mathematical field of information theory. But At anyway. the same time, I find that to be pretty ironic. Your own system has no limitation born out of this universalism. So you've managed to do that much creativity with pretty much no structure. You are definitely at the the blank canvas stage, unless you can explain what restrictions you put on yourself. Um, Because you've been quite productive, obviously. I'm hearing about hundreds of pages written on the subjects, and you have a a personal motivation, your memory castle that you're building. But at the same time, you are doing an actual creative process, and it seems like there's pretty much nothing you're not interested in. Mm -hmm. Whereas I... You know, I ran up against the, a situation where I was staring into the abyss of game design and I had to make a judgment call that I was going to draw a little circle around myself of what I was going to try to simulate and be very honest with players is about an adventure type of setting and, you know, that kind of thing. It's not, it's not promising that total lateral possibility that you have. Well, I think maybe that might be constrained by the fact that perhaps you intend to publish. I mean, I just sort of started down a road that I never really intended to come back from, if that makes sense, right? Like, I never intended to... There was no destination. There was just keep working on it, because this is what I enjoy doing. I had a, um, I had a and, whole couple of years of where I was doing that, and that's that's why I say I've been working on my game for, like, 10 years. It's like, if I had been working a publishable, concrete product that I was going to try to be putting out, it would have been sooner, but there were years where I was just fiddling with endless notions, not even intending to release it ever. Yeah. Well, 2008, that's about since when I've been working on mine. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's also I worth noting... I can't think of anything that would already simulating if we could find a good way to do it. I, I also would like to point out of. that there's nothing... Like, I'll, a good deal of the modules, uh, clever things in my system, are shamelessly derivative. Like, <laughs> I, I, I play a video game, if it has a mechanic that seems to be modeling something in an interesting way, I backhack it. Like, I figure out what the actual, you know, programming is. Um, oh, I see. Right. Like, we stole influence from David. Yeah, right. Uh, one of, I stole on my arbitrage, I think I've mentioned before, from an old Sega Genesis game. Uh, and the hardest part about simulating the market is that the market is, by definition, unsimulatable. Right. Uh, like, if we could figure that out, we'd... We'd be Warren Buffett. Yes. We would literally be Warren Buffett. Yes. <laughs> um, so there's no way to simulate the market... It, or if there is, it's under lock and key by a Well, I mean, either, there but. may be a way, but I doubt we'll be the people to figure it out. There's been a lot of interest in simulating the market as opposed to simulating elephant speed. Right. Which, interestingly enough, I found a lot of really good papers by biologists on. But um, anyway, <laughs> uh, the market, though, in particular, was adequately simulated by this 1992 Koei Sega Genesis game, huh. and which um, just selling a certain amount in a certain port, uh, it divided the market up into sectors, same as the, uh, you know, a stockbroker would into the GIX analysis. Have you ever heard of GIX? No, um, I haven't. It, it, if you if you do any investing, uh, it's it's just a way of analyzing the way industries impact each other. For instance, the energy industry impacts industrials in a fairly big way, or utilities. Right. Uh, utilities are resistant to um, stock market depression because even when people are poor, they're going to keep paying for electricity. So if you have all your stocks and utilities, you don't lose any money. Uh, so the idea is you divide things up into sectors that have these properties, right, and how they're related to each other in the market. And uh, then it's just a plot matter of, of factoring in supply and demand. 
So if you had a sector in the 16th century of the spice trade, spice could be considered a sector on its own, and you sell a bunch of cloves uh, to a European market, and the price of basil will drop because now uh, you have a lot of supply in the same sector. People are buying basil instead of clo- uh, cloves instead of basil. Right. Right. Supply of spice as a whole went up, even though cloves is a separate thing. But the fact that cloves affects basil puts it in the same sector. Uh, for every $10,000 of cloves you sold, the price of basil goes down by 1% to a minimum of minus 50% or plus 50, which is the minimum maximum because at a certain point they're a diminishing return. And then you purchase the basil at half off and turn around and sell it to China. So just to be um, clear, this is, you're talking about a Sega Genesis game here. Yes. And I, I, I just, I completely ripped this off wholesale because this is perfect for how supply, it models supply and demand in industry sectors. Um, and it's very, very simple. It's just 1% for every $10,000. Uh, just at, you know, it's, it was simplicity and perfect elegance. Uh, and elegance is another design principle I wanted to mention myself. Uh, a map is only as useful as the information it omits. A perfect map of England would include the location of every blade of grass and would be the size of England. It's the map territory problem is what <laughs> they call it in philosophy. Uh, elegance to me is getting the maximum amount of information while removing as much detail as possible. Uh, That's that is, why we don't have massive tables. It's the perfection of the equation. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they were able to model the entirety of supply and demand with such a simple equation, I can remember it and recite it to you without looking it up, you know, just sitting here yeah. and not even having used it in, like, years. No one's actually ran a merchant game, <laughs> you know. That's what we strive for in most of our systems, is a system that once you learn it, you can sit down at the table to play it without having to look at the rules even once. Because everything is so easy to remember that you can keep the entirety of the system in your head. Yeah, I think that would be a hell of a tall order for most people, but uh, I think as you use it, as you get exposed to it, I can see how it starts to grow. Yeah, that's partially why we wanted a formula for calculating animal speed instead of writing up a monster manual with all the animals and assigning them each a different base speed. Because one of them, you have to keep flipping the book open and checking, this is how fast camels run, this is how fast dogs run. The other one, you remember one single equation, and you can make all of the animal encounters you want without having to check the book. Yeah, theoretically, you cut out just endless amount of work by by modeling something correctly once. It, it, but just as a as an aside here, it, it reminds me of a comment you left recently on the GDG brainstorming section where you were sad that uh, that uh, Monchop was not going to be working Goblins of Wall Street fantasy stock market game. I yes. can see now after listening to your your speech on the uh, the inspiration yeah, of the stock market why. You really were looking forward to whatever that design was. I think you're going to have to be the one that goes into that <laughs> system. But nobody else is going to have the, the patience to actually model that. I mean, like I said, uh, it was it was as simple as just playing a Sega Genesis game for me. You know, uh, it, it's not like I came up with this on my own. And even with the corruption system, I took it from a friend and modified it for China. And I also added in, I literally just researched the sociology literature on corruption. And uh, arbitration was like the number one thing that causes corruption, which incidentally probably goes a long way to my own design philosophy. <laughs> I really, I, I, I am, I'm a forever GM. Uh, because I am a terrible player. Like, I, I, I flip tables and throw dice at just the slightest thing. I, I am pretty awful. Um, <laughs> you know, 
The only person I really let run games for me these days is Molly, because she understands my temperaments in this regard, because I, I get very tactical and precise about how I want to do things, and it assumes that the world works the way the world actually works. And if my knowledge outpaces the GM, and the GM does an arbitrary fiat call that eliminates, mm. like, a basic fact about, like, physics... You know, um, mm-hmm. like, when we played, the last D- D&D game we ever played, and probably the last D&D game we ever will play, was uh, Kingmaker. And every single encounter, I planned out, like, a SWAT team. <laughs> like, every single time. Like, you it's just like, interested. no, we're not doing this. No, we have information, recon, you know. We have um, sufficient plans in place that they won't even have a chance to roll initiative yeah. before it's all over. Right, like there, you know, it was no save or die. It was just you die. <laughs> so in that, and sense, if I couldn't arrange that, then I would avoid the encounter until I could find a way to arrange that. This does sound like a pure nightmare for somebody who would like to run a game. But at the same time, that that also means that you're not interested in role playing in the sense of the word, where you're putting yourself in the shoes of somebody who's ignorant and doesn't know modern, you know, advanced warfare tactics, right? Well, I mean, you uh, use knowledge that you would know in yeah, character. Exactly. None, none of this was actually out of character. Like this is some you, suit. You just this played someone who was maximally paranoid. Machiavelli. <laughs> this is uh, Caesar. You know, Hannibal. These are tactics that have existed in classical education for centuries. In fact, I would wager people a millennia ago were more familiar with them than we are today. I see what you mean. Uh, yeah, okay. Uh, because this was part of the classical education in Latin back uh-huh. in, you know. And for him, role-playing was playing that type of character who obsessively plans so much, who avoids all encounters that he didn't know was going to turn out a certain way, who was that paranoid Because guy. I cared about dying in character. Right. But at the right. same time, you would have to also accept, and maybe this comes to a disagreement point between us philosophically, but the if you're really trying to like role play a, a realistic character, your character most likely would not be educated to the point in these different philosophies that they would get to that point. Or would you be willing to play a character who had none of that tactical knowledge? And there's plenty of irrational reasons why people are perfectly oh, yeah. willing to die. You know, in a in a in a crusade. You, you, I mean, you are somewhat bad at playing actively stupid characters. I'm not sure if I'm bad at it as much as I am uninterested by it. Okay. Oh, uh-huh. that's, what I, that's what I would assume is that you aren't interested in characters that. Oh, then you, know, you are bad at playing characters who are very not wise. And actually, I'm not even sure it's a matter of uninterested in it. Is in at least a lot of the time with the players we have, if I don't play a leading role, nothing happens. Right. Yes. This is a problem I run into too. Right. Like, because. If, if I'm not the character who takes charge, sets out a plan, sets out an agenda, then we just kind of end up forever sitting around the tavern waiting for an NPC quest giver to show up. Like, I have to be the face. Mm-hmm. It's, right. you know, I have to be, I, and by, and usually in addition to the face, I'm also the, person who comes up who makes the decisions i become the leader and the leader makes those decisions now i know um, a little bit about your your existing group and your struggles to find players well, I have of different groups. varieties but my that... online group's pretty solid but oh, okay. uh, there's so yeah so the i guess you, you would just not be interested in playing you know the drunk uh who wants to die gloriously and you know uh whatever because that's well, even i mean like but the problem with that kind of character is they usually die pretty fast. <laughs> well, right, but that's still something you, you can explore. Yeah. The motivations I mean, and, and the he, psychology of, you know, him getting over this death wish that he has. I mean, that's that's all some pretty classic role-playing stuff if you want yeah. to method act what, that. 
with our current group, right, the previous game we'd played with that group, it kind of fell apart because I played a character who was very interested in politics, who was very ambitious and tried to get a lot of、uh, influence done, and that was just not interesting to the rest of the party, who mostly wanted to go into the woods and fist fight bears. Yeah. So when we started the new campaign, as just a kind of challenge to myself to see if I could do it, if I put my mind to it, I decided to play basically a bipolar, impulsive asshole、yeah. who didn't think more than five seconds into the future and had absolutely no self-control. <laughs> How did that turn? Yeah. Yeah.、Um, with the consequence that she's made the other players just be very abusive towards her. Huh. Because the he's a, because the character she's playing is a, such an asshole. So,、uh, but、you、they don't really appreciate. A, yeah, you can make an interesting pair when you're you put your minds together, the, taking things to logical extremes, opposed to sort of always、um, I forget what the term is for it, but sort of giving way to foolish Not notions, heuristics, norms. No, the,、uh, the 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 act of.、Uh, Giving up on what you want for the sake of, you know, bridging the harmony in the, in the group. I mean, that's what I did do for this campaign.、Yeah. That's I made a character who doesn't really give a crap about riding into combat and possibly dying, so that other players can have their fun going to the woods and fist fighting bears. <laughs> I guess in your mind, you're. I, I was hoping that the fact that I regularly say assholeish things would be balanced by the fact that I give the group free gear, and all of their gear is provided for free. But apparently, people don't spend a lot of time thinking about where their gear comes from, and they spend a lot of time having to interact with an asshole. Oh boy. <laughs> well, I don't have to say to that. I'm, I'm glad you're not playing D and D, and I'm glad that you have a whole enables magic and freeform. Not not actually freeform. It's actually quite the opposite. It's、right. very system driven and procedural. But、mm-hmm. in a sense, it's like the the perfect setting for a real freeform where no premise and you have to have agency and. Yep. Well, that's the best kind of game when right, the players. The reason it's freeform is because the power is in the players, not the arbitration, the seed, the creativity. The power power is arbitration fundamentally. Yes, and if you take the power away from the GM by making most of his actions rote and procedural, it becomes entirely about the player. Yeah,、um, you know, maybe it's a form of masochism for me, but I certainly enjoy it.、Uh, I like modeling. I like being surprised. And as I said、uh, in a conversation with you earlier, Coleman, it, it's like rats in a maze to me. It, for me, the players test and challenge the model, and the fun for me is updating and correcting the model, not so much writing the stories or. Even trying to guide them in some particular way, I don't want the power. And having in the situations where I have the power, that's viewed as a flaw.、Right. It's frustrating. It's、uh, it's unsatisfying because I don't like playing mommy may I. That's why I can't handle it as a player. Like if you just, I don't sit around here to have some guy, you know, like tell me after rolling some dice that I win. Like I don't, I don't see the point. In I, I, I need, agree. And I don't see the point in doing it to my players either. I need to know, as the GM, what the outcome is, independent of what I just feel like, because、um, I usually don't really care or have a preference to begin with. But even if I did, I don't see the point in steering it one way or the other. I see that as having a certain. I'm, I'm trying to imagine the target demographic for for playing your game, and I would imagine it has to be people who are either highly motivated、mm-hmm. to define their own、mm-hmm. identity as character, not、mm-hmm. be given an identity, and then play out that role. You know, the class where you pick a class, and now your job is to play out that role 
It's to create your own role and class, your, your own identity in that fictional world. But at the same time, you, I imagine, must have to unconcerned or agnostic about the setting itself unless you have some method of sort of drawing people into the world built and modeled. Um, generally, when it comes to ambitious players, right, it's... It's not sufficient to just be ambitious. You have to have ambitions. We have a lot of players coming to the table, and their motivation is just, "I want to make a lot of money." I guess. Right. And that's not that's not interesting. So the setting is there to give you a context in which to have specific ambitions. But I would say, like, let's My- say um, a good you know introduction setting. There's all sorts of ways to do it, but mm-hmm. you know, there's sort of a, a sense of injustice or something like that that is a pretty clear moral imperative. There might be opportunities mm-hmm. that are agreed imperative. You'd have these different imperatives that that tend to draw people adventure and taking risks and stuff. Is there anything inherently in this, or even advice you give GMs do this um, for drawing people's different things or creating a character? I guess we haven't really I talked think- about. I think, it's a, I think he's kind of giving you an existential player. I mean, is. I think that I think that the best advice you can give isn't to the GM, but to the players. Uh, if you're lacking for ambitions, if you don't know what your character wants, what I find helpful is making a very dogmatic, ideological character. Then that ideology will push you to do all sorts of things. Like when in doubt, to make somebody who is really, really, you know, either religious or just super into this movement or the other. Right. And that that kind of directs your character all by itself, right? Like my favorite campaign that I've ever played in this system was just me coming to the table with a character and who's like, I want to take over my country and institute a communist regime. Right. I think. Communism had everything right. Right, and so that obviously, once you define that as your motivation, you have a journey ahead of you, no matter what. Right, you you immediately have you know conflict antagonist short term goals just by nature of what you want. But that that's so, a that's a burden you put on yourself as as a player. Right. And I think, like, a really key question to ask for you uh, about your characters is when someone says, I want money or I want power, they need to define it one step further and say money for what, power for what. Yeah, I would totally agree. And one of the things in my, you know, I don't mind in my character creator process giving people a list of examples they might be motivated by and a list of, you know, factions or instances they might have and sort of, you know, suggesting ways for them to sort of get in a character's mentality that kind of provide them with example motivation. It doesn't even have to be hard, a hard list of choices, but much like your spells and some other things, you know, the, uh, the metaphysics of your game, the general freeform-ish sort of nature of it. I wonder how much you provide example and sort of well, training wheels. I think part of the job of the GM, right, is to do the same process for your NPCs. That the idea is the world doesn't just sit around waiting for you to do something. If you sit at home and do nothing, then Duke whatever still has his ambitions. You know, he still has a rival in Countess whoever. Right. And all of this stuff will be happening in the background no matter what you do. Yeah, there's a lot of overlap there between how you're designing, that, at least the principles of how you're designing that, and how I've approached mine in the past. And I find it interesting, the point of divergence probably between what I was doing was my to narrow down the, the, li- the range of experiences I was trying to recreate into one thing. Uh, and you're, you sort of went the opposite way and said, we're, we're going to keep expanding until all, like you said, the whole thing started with the conceptualizing, articulating all thought or whatever the... Oh, the magic. Yeah, I mean, that. but as a matter of principle, that's limitless scope. 
what I've seen for timeline idea and your magic idea. And if you can still man, if you can manage to do that, and still bring it back into. It sounds like you have pretty clear that your game can be set in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to have to have you back on at some point in the future, and maybe we'll just go through those different ages and spitball some ideas of, of uh, how to play a game in that. Or if you have any sort of recorded playthrough of the game, I'd also be very linking to that or to that. It's such a fascinating ambition. I know that there's some other people who are working Universal, but definitely not a set that you're trying to create that models so many things obviates for GM story creation. And a lot of this could be kind of traced to a bit of advice I got on T six years ago, which is a game is only as good as its player. Um, I know a lot of people want to put the responsibility entirely on the GM, and it was in the thread that was complaining about bad GMs, but the reality is there's only so much you do with uninspired or unmotivated players. There's only so much that can go into it. And if players don't take it upon themselves to get motivated, to get ambitious, to think about their character, to actually play their role, that you can't really make a fantastic experience out of that ex nihilo from nothing. Right. Or as potentially with a table of great players, but one shitty GM, they could just do it without the GM. Right. Uh, yeah, that's true. And I suppose your philosophy then in designing the game is why bother uh, holding the hand of bad players that much as opposed to giving the tools necessary, helpful to players who do have ambition. I feel like a lot of people become GMs because they want to be players in a system that gives it. Mm-hmm. That a lot of the NPCs, or as we like to call them, GMPCs, are simply one more character in the story, but now he has agency because he has control. Yeah, I, I think that's a huge tendency, whether people realize it consciously or not. If, if the system were set up so that the expectation wasn't on the GM uh, to provide all this, and that you could have that agency while being a player. I think it would lead to healthier dynamics. I think it would lead to a better system. But you're not um, interested in developing the GM list, obviously, where there's no mediator. Uh, you know, uh, to be honest, the there's only a very slight blur between me and another player as it is in my system. It's uh, I know the system, and so, but oftentimes the NPCs, they're just players with handicap. I just give them slightly worse stats in general. Right. But... Yeah, like, with this system, though, right, theoretically, if we had a group of people who all knew it inside and out like you did, and we sat around a table, there may not be a need for a GM. I could see Someone that, yeah. could say, here's our next scheme, and we can all just equally contribute to how that must turn out. Right. Yeah, and mean, just the only reason we can't do that is because it's not published, so no one can really learn the system without playing with you for years and years. I mean, you already kind of do this, right? And I'm the only person who does, right? So I think I think the solution here is to marry everyone. <laughs> uh, there'd be a lot of divorce in a short time because I I'm trying to imagine the 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 level of intellectual curiosity and patience and curiosity, everything that you'd have to have to master this system to the point where nobody has to be a, a GM, but it is Well, a, once, once the equations are written, it's really just a matter of memorizing them, and it's designed in such a way to be memorizable. It's Remember, it is a mnemonic system, fundamentally. There's certain patterns, uh, certain like lists always contain the same number of items. Right. Uh, equations always have, you know, Fairly simple formats, fairly simple variables. I, I never expand an equation to like multivariable calculus or anything. I never do any. 
I kind of have a hard cutoff on the level of complicated math I could be doing. Well, you see, now um, that goes back to what I said about your self-restraints. It turns out you actually have a whole set of restraints. In the elegantry, yes. It's yeah. about the, you know, like I said about map territory, it's about the information you remove. It's about the simplicity, the elegance, the mnemonic capacity in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If, if, it had, if it were more difficult, I could still run it, but I'd have to stop and run it. And if I have to stop and run it, then it's not useful at a table. It's also not that useful in real life. Yeah, we're modeling everything, but it's ultimately only a model. Right. Right, so you're still essentially, it has to be a certain level of user-friendly, because you yourself are trying to categorize, Mm -hmm. and it's supposed to be, it's supposed to have utilitarian value on some level. Right, like, that a part of the purpose of all this modeling, right, is to help us understand the world. And it's not that useful if something happens and we're like, oh, crap, I better go home and carefully read my notebook for the next four hours. <laughs> so there's still so a it's pragmatic... Not to be able to remember everything. Yeah, there's still a pragmatic in there. It has to be usable. And uh, theoretically, I would love for you to publish this somewhere or just release it in a way that more people see it. If nothing else, I would say that uh, people on GDG or whatever, I imagine after hearing you guys explain uh, what you're trying to do here, you're going to get a whole new wave of appreciation and some people consulting you for different things, perhaps. Monchop can come and ask you about your your model for his goblin stock market uh, game. Other other people... Yeah, we'd love to work on that. One of the projects we kind of got dead in the water right now was trying to make an MBA-based business administration system. Right. It's sort of based on Molly's business school knowledge. Yeah. I feel like you're one step removed from a very lucrative splat book or whatever they call it, model of release modules and expansions that uh, almost any of these different parts of your system would be quite valuable to the right group of people. Uh, From what I could tell, I mean, I did briefly consider publishing in my early days, and from what I could tell from GG, this didn't seem like a very lucrative market in general. Well, I mean, if one day we have a crap ton of free time on our hands and nothing to do, we might write up your system so that it's a little bit more legible Mm -hmm. and not pages of you arguing with yourself and just throw it on some free (laughs) website. Yeah, a lot of things are just highlighted and striked through, and I just sort of know what that's supposed to mean. Mm-hmm. And, like, abbreviations that are never really clarified. Uh, different generations of abbreviations, because I've changed terminology a few times. Stuff that would be very upsetting to a computer. <laughs> yeah. No, I, normally what I would do at the end of the podcast is say that I, I hope, I wish you have good luck in finishing your system and releasing it or whatever. But I guess in your case, I have to wish that you have breakthrough, continuous, endless breakthroughs in modeling the universe. <laughs> I guess that will suffice, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, that is Fade and Molly. We didn't actually even mention the name of this antediluvian chronicle. So that's a, I managed to say that the first time it up. I'm pretty happy about that. Um, I'm going to go ahead and recommend that people who listen to this get in contact with you. I, I'm sure I'm more interested in it than I used to be, even though I was quite interested in it before. And I'm definitely going to come to you and pester you about certain things. I like the amount of overlap between your modeling geography and the politics out of that. All of that great world-building site that I think a lot of GMs and game designers use. And a lot of people just don't have a good starting point. And it sounds like you have a pretty damn good model for that, among so many other things. So... I'm going to go ahead and, uh, and and cut this off. It's been a great discussion. Thank you for coming on. We're probably going to try Thanks to have you back. Us. Yeah, 
you know where to find me, anyone who wants to talk. Um, hopefully I can be more helpful. I um, found GDG to be very helpful, and um, you know, mostly I often feel like I don't have a lot to contribute. So if there's anything I could be helpful on, that sounds like a great way to, you know. We need to pile on the appreciation and love over here. That's what the podcast is all about. So Aww. I uh, I want to have a whole fan club for the Antediluvian Chronicles and people... <laughs> coming to figure out parts of it and pick it apart even maybe you get more play testers i don't know but we'll see where that all leads in the coming days and weeks mm-hmm. all right that's it for this one thank you for indulging the podcast of you're course. welcome for me indulging you <laughs> we'll yeah, see you on gdg you. see you i told you it was going to be crazy so that was very interesting a very thought-provoking, different approach to RPG tabletop design. Still perfectly valid in my mind. You don't have to make a project that other people are going to run. You can make it for your own sake. You can make it for your own reason. They're still trying to obey good game design in many ways, and they're just working on a longer time scale than most people and for different purposes than most people. So I want to say if you're working on something of this level, something that's that different, than the ordinary. I still want to have you on the podcast. I still want to talk to you. You don't have to be making a mainstream success sort of game. You can be working on something that's experimental. But what's interesting to me is that you have a vision and a purpose. So hopefully we can have them back on. Hopefully we can talk about any progress they've made, any plans they have, and maybe some of the topics that, uh, you know, some of the finer points of why they modeled something a specific way. And there's different debates we could have on, on why they chose to do it a certain way and not a different way. I know that there's a lot of meat on the bone to, to talk about. But uh, for now, go out there, find them on GDG, talk to them about something. I, I can pretty much guarantee if you're trying to model something in your system, if you want to create a a method, these guys want to help you or at least they're in- interested in the same topic and they're very uh, avid about trying to solve some of the problems that everyone else would say cannot be solved. So thanks for listening. See you guys next time.